in the sacrament of baptism, the Lord appoints the sacrament and he speaks through the sacraments. Very important in thinking about the sacraments to recognize that they're first and foremost a means of grace, where God comes in the sacrament and by the Spirit's working through the sacrament, says something from God's side to the one baptized. Welcome back to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. You're listening to episode 121, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Starting today, we're going to take a deep dive and look at the sacraments in Reformed theology. Dr. Cornelis Venema and Dr. Alan Strange begin with the sacrament of baptism by answering this simple question, what is it? Our topic for this podcast is the sacrament of baptism. And it may be dangerous to begin by acknowledging this. The term sacrament is not actually an explicitly biblical term. Uh, The term Paul uses for the relationship between husband and wife in Ephesians 5 is the term mystery, um, which is sometimes in translations rendered sacrament. But the idea of a sacrament is to give a visible sign and seal of, to use a very traditional definition from Augustine onward, of an invisible grace. We know from the New Testament that from the beginning our Lord in the Great Commission when he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, they were to baptize those who were discipled into the name of the triune God, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of Acts and you read Paul's and the New Testament epistles, it's quite clear that the sacrament of baptism was a part of the church's ministry of the gospel that signified and sealed what the Word itself promises to believers and to those who are baptized, that they belong to God, they are uh, promised the saving benefits of Christ's work on behalf of his people. I think the central, perhaps, principle, meaning, and significance of this sacrament, which is to be administered but once, it's a sacrament of incorporation, It's a sacrament that signifies that we belong to God the Father through Christ and by his indwelling spirit. And the uh, sacrament, you're, you're brought into the fellowship of Christ's church, whether as an adult believer or as a child of believing parents, once. It's a sacrament of, as I put it, incorporation. It's not like the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is to be administered regularly, frequently, um, as a sacrament that principally The idea I would stress with that sacrament is that it's a sacrament of nourishment. It nourishes and strengthens the faith of those who receive and enjoy communion with the Lord through the sacraments. Now, I need to go back to the definition uh, using the language, a sign of an invisible grace. What the gospel word pronounces and declares to believers is by means of the accompanying sacrament, visibly represented. In a manner of speaking, it's a visible word, and it's not accidental that the element that is um, at the center, 
by the Lord's appointment, consecrated to that purpose, is water. Because those who are incorporated into Christ enjoy the washing of renewal and regeneration, the remission, uh, the purging of their sin by the blood of Christ and by the powerful working of the Spirit of Christ. So all those who are incorporated into Christ receive in baptism a, by God's appointment, the Lord's appointment, a solemn sign that represents the promises of the gospel of the washing away of our sins in a twofold sense, both in terms of the guilt of sin, remission, and the power of sin, the dominion of sin through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And there are also seals, which is a different word than the word sign. Sign suggests that which represents and has correspondence with the spiritual blessing that is uh, signified. A seal is a solemn confirming. It's an attestation. It's not surprising that the word sacrament was originally used in connection with oath-taking. It's a way of, in a manner of speaking, swearing an oath. In this instance, in the sacrament of baptism, the Lord appoints the sacrament, and he speaks through the sacrament. It's very important in thinking about the sacraments to recognize that they're first and foremost a means of grace, where God comes in the sacrament and by the Spirit's working through the sacrament, says something from God's side to the one baptized and uh, communicates as the Spirit. The sign itself is not the reality, but the Lord is pleased to join the reality with the sign that he's given. And so we should have a high view of the sacrament as with the Word, accompanying the Word, uh, as Calvin puts it, as a kind of an appendix to the Word, God condescends to us to give us this wonderful, visible signing and sealing of what belongs to us in and through union with Christ. I think the principal theme or significance of baptism is first and foremost union with Christ, which is the all-inclusive reality of being brought into fellowship with God through Christ and enjoying the benefits of that union with Christ. The Reformed Confessions will often accent the washing away of sin in the twofold sense I mentioned earlier, but they also wonderfully speak of it as God's way of distinguishing uh, believers and their children from the world as members of Christ and enlisting them, to use a term from the Westminster Confession of Faith, to um, not only enjoy communion and fellowship with with him and the blessings of the gospel that are ours in Christ Jesus, signified and sealed in baptism, but also to live accordingly. I always like the expression, it's an old English usage of the word improve, that the Westminster Confession of Faith uses in this connection that believers and all who have been baptized are, through their baptism, constantly reminded and uh, encouraged and summoned, in a manner of speaking, to live accordingly. They are members of Christ. They have received the promise, signified and sealed to them in their baptism, and their life should correspond to the reality of their incorporation into Christ. So baptism isn't just an event that took place in the past. It's an event with abiding significance. It really frames and undergirds 
and identifies the one baptized as one purchased by the blood of Christ, owned of the triune God, who's placed his name upon the one baptized and calls them to live a life that is corresponding to that reality that signified and sealed to them in their baptism. Just a couple of other things, just in a general way about sacraments. The church doesn't invent sacraments. I used the language earlier, if this is by the Lord's appointment, uh, a means of grace that accompanies the word. Uh, In the Roman Catholic tradition, there are no less than seven sacraments, but the church cannot invent what the Lord has not appointed. And it's significant that There are only two such sacramental signing and sealing of God's grace toward us in Christ that were clearly taught in the New Testament, were appointed by the Lord himself. Alan Strange here, joining my good colleague, President Venema. And um, much has been said, and uh, I heartily amen it, Uh, much has been said that I was perhaps thinking about saying, uh, there's still a lot to say. Uh, just to point out a few things from the Westminster Standards, that the nature of baptism uh, is something, uh, as, as has been said, it's a sign and seal of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ. And it's worth noting that the Spirit's gift of faith that makes efficacious that as a means of grace is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, especially preaching. Baptism is said to be, together with the supper, and I'm linking into what Dr. Venema has said, a means of increasing and strengthening the faith that is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. But this needs to be said, that faith that comes primarily and usually, first of all, through hearing, does not mean, of course, that baptism is unimportant. Uh, any more than an affirmation of the the primacy of preaching, and we very clearly affirm that here uh, at Mid-America, means that the supper is insignificant. Now, it's the case that grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed, I'm quoting Westminster Confession 28.5, so inseparably annexed into baptism as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all the baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. This is something we would teach that first part uh, against the Roman Catholic Church, or over against them, I should say. We don't believe, for example, in emergency baptisms, that midwives and doctors and others need to baptize these babies so they will make it into heaven. Uh, No, we believe that God is quite able to take care of this, uh, but this is uh, an ordinary and proper sign of such as we've spoken of it. Baptism is a gracious gift of God to his covenant people and not to be neglected. It's not to be neglected because it says in that same confession that says that all the baptized are not undoubtedly regenerated. We're not also teaching that head for head, everybody who's baptized is elect. We don't identify those in that way, but we do believe it's both a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, uh, and that it is a gracious gift of God to his covenant people. Is it efficacious? Is it, does it work in uh, Westminster? I'm, I'm staying in this section of Westminster here. It says the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised 
is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So this, I think, is a very nice way of bringing together the realities of election and covenant, not not focusing on one to the exclusion of the other. We've had, we've had folks uh, in years past and decades past who have said things, they've written things, and they've said, let's just keep this simple. Let's just focus on covenant and don't even take election into view. Uh, or there are those who let election swallow up everything. Uh, neither of those is a safe and proper approach. And as Dr. Venema said also, our listeners might be interested uh, in, in some stories of someone who came from a Baptistic position, was born and brought up in that position. Um, it is the case that baptism is to be performed but once is a very important point to make as well because it does, it's the sacrament or rite of initiation uh, and in some circles, uh, if one is renewed or goes to a quote-unquote revival meeting or something of that sort, it's very common in such circles to get baptized again. In fact, I had a relative who was a rather given to backsliding and in and out of church, and she would be baptized by her own testimony uh, once a year, she said, just in case. Well, this is not a good view of the sacrament. And another relative encouraged me that her husband had just been baptized uh, at the church in a series of what they called extended meetings, were so-called revival meetings. And I said to this relative, hasn't he been baptized before? And she said, oh, yes, honey, but we hope it takes this time. So you have uh, you have those kinds of views of baptism out there that uh, almost some, somewhat more like we would view the supper, which is the ongoing sacrament, you might say, of of continuation and of nurture. Uh, we're baptized but once, and then um, Dr. Venema also mentioned um, the great question, uh, question one sixty seven. Westminster Larger Catechism 167. He didn't explicitly mention it. He referred to it. I'd like to read some of that. It's how is our baptism to be improved by us? And that may seem like very strange language. Um, and, And just think about this as I give this answer. The answer suggests that improving our baptism, that particular phrase, is frequently neglected to our detriment. We ought to make much of our baptism, especially in the time of temptation. And when we're present at the baptism of others, that's a great opportunity. I think many of our listeners would probably know that Luther, when tempted, would often reply, I am a baptized man. You may recall that Luther tended to say things out loud to the tempter or the enemy. And he was, but that's a very good thing to say when one is tempted, because what you're thinking about is, I have an identity. My life is hidden with God in Christ. I'm his. He's mine. And it's a very, I think it's a very functional way of doing what I have found very helpful in the book by Dane Ortland. I think a lot of people know that we really appreciated 
uh, Dr. Ortland's first book, Gentle and Lowly, but he's written a second book that my wife and I are reading now in our devotional time called Deeper, and it's basically on sanctification, and it's it's going deeper into the understanding of really who we are in Christ and calling us to be who we are. It's an excellent, excellent source. But that whole book, you might say, is is sort of about improving your baptism. And let me just read it. The the question one sixty seven. The neglect, the needful, but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long especially in the time of temptation and when we're present at the administration of it to others, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it, thinking about baptism like we're doing now, and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we're baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. So uh, I think this is testament to a number of things, including that our uh, confessions and catechisms, here we have the Westminster Larger Catechism, are hardly impractical. This is a really practical sort of thing to to take into to our hearts and to have in our view as we, as we go through our Christian lives. If I may uh, tag on to what Alan has just said about being practical, it's significant uh, in some discussions of the sacrament of baptism, people get, uh, and this may be a little bit of a prequel to our second uh, podcast on this topic, uh, that it must be by way of immersion in water, that the one baptized is only really baptized. The word baptized is said to mean explicitly to immerse. Uh, historically, in the practice of the Christian church and certainly within the Reformed churches, there has been a a general consensus that whether the person baptized is immersed or water is poured out, effusion, not immersion, or sprinkled, what's critical is that the gospel word, the words of institution, a baptizing, naming the one baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with water. How much water is relatively a matter of indifference. It should be visible, and it should be even, if possible, clean water by way of Christian tradition, given the the symbolism of the water as a means of washing, and in this case, through union with Christ, the washing away of our sins, both as to their guilt and as to our pollution or corruption, our filthiness as sinners. Um, I can tell a little story. My father, early in his ministry, he was a Reformed minister, uh, was ministering in a community where at a neighboring church, a baptism was to be administered at the morning service, and it so happened there was no water in the baptismal font. And the uh, 
minister foolishly proceeded to pretend to baptize the person who was receiving the sacrament, uh, which led to a series of events, not the least of which was a meeting of the elders to discuss whether the child had in fact been baptized. Conclusion, no. So there wasn't a rebaptism at a subsequent service, but there was an actual baptism. Uh, I read recently in a news report that in the Roman Catholic communion, uh, certain priests or a bishop in a certain region, diocese, had used the wrong formula. He used the language we baptized, which is not the authorized formula, which raised serious questions uh, regarding the validity of the baptism. I think as a, from a biblical and reform point of view, it's the two critical elements are the gospel word concerning baptiz- baptism into the name of the triune God and the use of water by whatever means it's administered. Um, Alan touched on this, and I think I'd just like to come back to it by way of a concluding comment. Reformed theology wants and historically has always emphasized and had a high regard for the significance of baptism. It's not to be dispensed with, uh, though the word may be prior and primary, it's disobedience not to obey the command of our Lord to visibly attest, signify, and seal the grace that is ours in Christ to those who are Christ by means of this sacrament. But we've always resisted the notion that it's indispensable to salvation. Um, There are, as Alan mentioned earlier, midwives performing emergency baptisms. Uh, It's always been agreed that one is saved by the working of the Spirit through the Word and in the way of faith. And as important as the sacrament is, it isn't without which you cannot be saved. Uh, which is not to diminish the sacrament, but it's to ward off a kind of viewpoint that views the sacrament of baptism as sort of the centerpiece of how Christ is given to his people and views it in terms of its efficacy as an act in the sacrament's administration that regardless of the working of the Spirit, not only through the sacrament, but in the one baptized, bringing them to faith, uh, and through faith, uniting them to Christ. Uh, The mere performance of the rite, regardless of the use of the Spirit in working by means of it together with the Word and bringing about through these means the appropriate response, the receiving of Christ in the way of faith, is integral. And I say that maybe in some ways as a preparation again for our second podcast when the question will be discussed regarding who should be baptized. And if the children of believing parents should be baptized, does that diminish or in some way viewed by the Reformed Church that the sacrament itself saves? Should infants of believing parents be baptized? Tune in next week to find out. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.